All right, so the two verses that we're going to look at tonight is Matthew 27, 33, and 34. We heard it in our reading. That's what the scripture says. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled to think that all three persons of the Trinity conspired together for our salvation. Father, that you sent your Son, Jesus, that you came willingly, and Holy Spirit, that you filled him up so that he could do this awful work. Help us to peer into this great mystery this evening. We ask it for your great name's sake. Amen. All right, please be seated. How's our message this evening is the cup that Jesus refused to drink. J. Gresham Machen said this a, dec- uh, a century ago, rather, um, when he was fighting liberalism and defending it from... Uh, defending Christianity from liberalism. The world, he says, was to be redeemed through the proclamation of an event. And with this event went the meaning of the event. And these two elements are always combined in the Christian message. The narration of facts is history. And the narration of facts with the meaning of those facts is doctrine. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That's history. He loved me and gave himself for me. That's doctrine. So in this passage that we're considering tonight, Jesus refused to drink a cup of wine mixed with gall when it was offered to him. That's history. What does it mean for us? How is this truth that we just heard, one of the greatest soul-sustaining, Satan-defeating, hell-quenching doctrines in the whole gospel? Let's find out. So here is our big idea this evening. Every decision that Jesus made guaranteed that he would suffer fully for all our sin. Every decision that Jesus made guaranteed that he would suffer fully for all our sin. Let's look at verse 33 together. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And that has massive biblical significance. Whenever an animal was sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people, they took the blood, they put it against the altar, and then they would take the body and they would take it outside the city gate and they would burn it. The Lord Jesus, he's the sacrifice of all sacrifices and he's fulfilling that foreshadowing. He's taken outside the city gates outside the holy city, and he offered himself without blemish to God. 
Um, when Jesus left the city, he took all of our sin outside the city gates with him. Golgotha was the place where criminals were executed. Jesus was counted as a criminal. Imagine that. Imagine the most holy man that you could ever meet treated as a criminal, not only by Pontius Pilate, not only by the Jews, but even God the Father counted him as a criminal in this moment. Isaiah 53, 12 says that he was numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners. Golgotha means the place of the skull. As one author says, it was called this because this were the bones and the skulls of dead men were laid so that they would be out of the way of human defilement. So imagine you climbing up that hill and the smell of putrefaction was thick in the air. You're choking on it. You can't get it out of your nostrils. You're holding your, your, your arm over your nose, over your mouth, so that you don't breathe it in. And that's where the greatest act in human history took place. As the soldiers led Jesus up to that place where they would nail his hands and feet to the cross, something very curious happened. So, so imagine the scene. The cross is laying on the ground because that's the only way that they could nail him to it. They can't nail him to it when he's up on the cross. And so before they nail him to the cross, they offer him a cup to drink, wine mixed with gall, before they crucified him. Was this kindness? Was this the soldiers just being kind to Jesus in his last moments? Not at all. We, we just heard they, 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 they scourged him beyond human semblance. Isaiah 52.14 says in the New Living Translation that his face was so disfigured that he seemed hardly human and from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. His eyes were probably shut um, with with all the blows that he received, perhaps part of them were cut open from the cat of nine tails that was whipping across his face and across his back. This wasn't kindness that they were offering him this drink at this moment. Well, perhaps it was mockery. You know, one last bit of mockery right before they put him up on the cross because gall was a bitter, a bitter drink. And so here's a bitter cup right before you go to the bitter cross. Was that it? Well, if it was, Jesus surely would have accepted it. He just got done with the, the crown of thorns and the purple robe on his, on his shoulders and the reed in his hand, and he was mocked again and again and spit on and beat again and again. No, he wouldn't have rejected this last form of mockery. Why did they offer him this drink? Well, what is gall? Gall is a... It's a bitter herb. Psalm 69.21 gives us a little clue. This was prophetically spoken from David a thousand years before as David is speaking for Christ in this moment. 
They gave me poison for food, and for, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Gaul was a poison of sorts. T- two theories on what this was. Either this was an anodyne, which means it was a painkiller. It was a numbing agent of some sort. These, see, these, these soldiers were professional soldiers, and they crucified many men. And they knew what was going to happen when they laid men down on the cross. They would fight. And so they offer this, my, uh, this numbing agent, this painkiller, this, this thing to make you senseless so that you would just lie there. The other theory is that this gall was an agent that would have caused Jesus to bleed out more quickly. Uh, Normally, crucifixion was meant to drag out the victim's sufferings. People could stay on the cross for two or three days. But in Jesus' case, the Jews had put pressure on Pontius Pilate because it was the day of preparation coming up on the Sabbath, and they didn't want Jesus hanging on the cross during the Sabbath. It comes from John 19.31. So whether this gall was a painkiller or whether it was a death accelerator, the soldiers offered it to Jesus out of pure pragmatism. It was not kindness. The real enigma, I think, in this place is, why didn't Jesus take it? Look at the end of verse 34. It says, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Children, boys and girls, when you have a fever or when you have a headache, would you not want some Tylenol from your parents? Some medicine that would make you feel better? When I was in college, I um, forget which knee it was. I think it was this one. I tore some cartilage when I was in wrestling and they doped me up with some incredible painkillers and... um, the mistake that I made is that I slept through the night without waking up to, to take my medicine. And I woke up and I was in incredible pain. I had to crawl on my stomach to my brother's room in order to get help. In order, the medicine was up on the fridge and he had to get it for me. God gave us painkillers as a, as a grace to ease the suffering in this fallen world. Painkillers are a reflection of God's kind heart. Why wouldn't Jesus want some pain relief right before those spikes were driven through his hands and through his feet? Wouldn't you? That brings us to our doctrine this evening. Every decision that Jesus made guaranteed that he would suffer fully for all our sin. Loved ones, just consider the dreadful choices that Jesus made. We heard most of them right here. So choice number one, Judas. Uh, Jesus chose to have Judas Iscariot be one of his disciples, though he knew Judas would betray him. John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus had every opportunity for three years to prevent 
Judas's treachery and he did it. Choice number two, the garden. Jesus chose not to escape from the Garden of Gethsemane before the soldiers came to arrest him. Ask yourself, if you were in a dark, somewhat secluded place, and you knew that wicked men were on their way to arrest you, to try you, to kill you, would you stay there? No. Jesus stayed. Um, He waited until they arrived, and he said to his disciples in Matthew 26, 45 and 46, see the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then he takes his disciples and he walks them right over to the very soldiers who are going to arrest him. Choice number three, his arrest. Jesus chose to have his disciples not prevent the arrest. Remember, Peter pulled his sword out and he swung at the high priest's servant's ear, cutting off his ear. Jesus, of course, restored the man's ear, but what he said to Peter was, put your sword back in its place. He refused to allow his disciples to rescue him. And then choice number four, our last example here, is Jesus chose not to call the angels to deliver him. Matthew 26, 53, 54, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You realize that countless more examples could be given. Jesus chose not to drink this wine mixed with gall because, because it was necessary to suffer for every single sin that his people committed. Don't you see that this gall would have prevented that? Whether the gall was a painkiller or a death accelerator, it would have lessened the wrath of God that Jesus felt on his body and on his soul. Jesus didn't go to Calvary to suffer for only a portion of our sin, loved ones. He went to suffer for every single sin. That's our doctrine. Let's consider then what our, what our duties are in light of this. And our first duty is just simply to consider what not drinking this gall meant for Jesus? What did this mean for Jesus's physical body? What would that mean? It means that he felt everything, every nerve ending, every bone shearing off, whether it was the sword and the spear in his side or the, the spikes in his hands, Every muscle fiber ripping, every failing organ, every agonizing breath, Jesus would fully experience in his flesh. The gall would have lessened that pain. It would have mitigated it. It would have turned some of that sensible pain off. 
that Jesus was feeling in his mutilated body. Certainly, you've seen those movies before, like Saving Private Ryan or somebody, and they get their, their arm blown off or the leg blown off. What is the first thing the medic does? Brings them morphine, and, and you can see immediately on the man's face, he's relieved. He's relieved. Jesus had zero relief. He felt everything in his physical body. But the goal would have even helped Jesus' greater suffering in his spirit. You know, many martyrs have suffered like Jesus has in his body. Some of them have been burned at the stake until their flesh melted off of their bones, but no one suffered in their spirit more than the Lord Jesus Christ. We heard as he's at the garden and he's, he's so terrified that he asked Jesus, he asked the father to, to have this cup pass from him and, and he's sweating blood. He's just looking inside of the furnace at that point. He's on the edge of it. But when he goes to the cross, he actually plunges himself into the fiery furnace. And that's where he feels the full weight of the wrath of God on his soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus' spirit crying out. The gall would have mitigated that even. Well, how is that, how is that the case? Well, because our body and our, our spirit are intimately connected together, aren't they? Again, when I had my, my surgery, a drug was administered to my body and I was told to start counting down from 10. I don't think I got to nine. My spirit went to sleep. I, I don't remember anything. The drug made it so that my spirit wasn't conscious about what was going on. Had Jesus taken the gall, he would have been less conscious of the burning wrath of God's fiery fury. He would have been senseless, more senseless to it. He, the pain would have been mitigated. He would have suffered less. The loved ones consider that. By not taking the gall, Jesus suffered more than any man ever has. In fact, more than the accumulated sufferings of all men, more than even all the damned in hell. I know that sounds like a spectacular claim, but Jesus actually satisfied all the wrath of God on the cross. The damned in hell will never experience that. That's precisely why it's everlasting. They will never suffer to the extent that Jesus suffered. And some of that pain could have been lessened if he just would have drank that cup. The intoxication of that drug would have made him less conscious, but he refused to drink it. Think of that next time you're stricken with pain. I know that many of you have ailments. And if you don't have ailments now, just wait. Think about that when you're stricken with pain and you go up to your cupboard and you take some painkillers or, or take a potion or take a tincture and, and, and you feel better. Jesus never did that. Our second duty then is to answer the inner accuser that we have. One of the issues of, become, of, of being a Christian for any length of time is that you discover that you keep on sinning. 
It's easy when you first are born again and you, you feel like in that, in that euphoric moment that, you, that you'll know that all of the sins that you've committed up to that second were all paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you get on in the Christian life, you realize you still sin. The more we come into the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more stains that we see, the more ugly that we see. Jesus actually shows us the darkness of our souls. And so that inner accuser starts to whisper to you, maybe you have a little bit of sin left to atone for. Maybe you have to suffer for some of your own sin. And so you feel constantly guilty and insufficient and you feel like a failure and you see Jesus dying on that tree and you think, well, maybe that was just the down payment. Maybe I have some installments to make until my soul gets paid off. How do we answer that? Well, if Jesus did drink that cup, we might have reason to believe that accusation. We might think to ourselves, well, Jesus alleviated some of his suffering, some of our suffering, so perhaps we need to pick up the rest of it. Friends, that's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. In fact, that's the false gospel of Mormonism. Second Nephi 25, 23 says in the Book of Mormon, it says, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. Grace will pick up whatever you don't pay off. That's a false gospel. How do we know that? Because Jesus drank the whole cup, or Jesus drank the whole cup of God's wrath, but he didn't drink the cup of this wine mixed with gall. He didn't drink it. He refused to let any of his suffering fall on you. He made full satisfaction for every one of your sins. And in his dying breath, he declared these three words. It is finished. He didn't take any shortcuts. He didn't just pay the down payment, leaving installments for you to complete. He paid it all. Jesus suffered it all. He satisfied it all. He propitiated it all. He atoned for it all. He left no sin for you to cover. Our third duty then is just to consider the foolishness of anyone who would refuse to come to such a savior. If Jesus suffered so painfully and consciously and was punished for every last sin for those who would trust him, how foolish is it to not come to this great Savior. See, God is a just God. And every sin must be punished. It would either be punished on Christ or it will be punished on the sinner. A day is coming when every secret will be revealed, when the books will be opened. And if our names are not written in the, in the Lamb's book of life, we'll everlastingly perish. And there will not be any gall on that day to relieve any of our pain. The scripture says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. The one who rejects Jesus in this life is a fool. They actually hate their own good. Good Friday is called good precisely 
because our Father in heaven has solved this problem. For all who trust in the Savior, their sins are forgiven. They're given an alien righteousness from Jesus himself, and they are granted everlasting life. I mean, none who hear this message tonight refuse that free gift. May none of us be called fools, but maybe we be wise as we look to him who suffered the uttermost for our sins. So let's look finally then at our delight this evening. Two questions left as we finish our time. And the first one is, is why did Jesus suffer? And secondly, how did Jesus suffer? So first of all, why did Jesus suffer? Well, Jesus suffered because he loved the honor and glory of God. Friends, don't you see that that's what's wrong with the world this evening? That mankind has gone astray. The whole cosmos is in disarray because man has not thanked God, man has not honored God. We turned from the creator and we've served the creature. The human race is broken. And the chief part of our brokenness is that God doesn't get the honor of our life. God doesn't get the fruit of our lips. God doesn't get the, the first. What God gets is our, our blasphemy. The most common way that Jesus' name is used in America today is as a cuss word. And Christ died to display that God is righteous. See, the issue is, is that the existence of sinners in the world makes God look unholy. If you come to my house and my kids are punching each other in the face and axing the walls and creating havoc and killing my dog you'll conclude that the person who's running that house is not running that house well. What, what do you think our world looks like? Our world looks like hell. And that makes God look unrighteous, that God would allow sinners like us to roam the planet. And so what Jesus did is that he came into the world to vindicate the most fundamental truth in the universe, that God is a holy God, that sin will be punished. That's the first reason why Jesus died. He died to vindicate the glory of God. But the second reason that Jesus died is he died because he loves sinners like you and me. God could have showed he was righteous by destroying Adam and Eve the first time that they sinned, but he didn't. Why didn't he? Because he loves us. It's so amazing. It's so incredible to think that he loves us, not because we are his friends. He loved us against our merits. He loved us against our deserts. He loved us while we were unworthy, God-hating, vile sinners. This is what the greatest truth of the gospel is, is that um, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't advance at God, God advanced at us. And Jesus didn't drink that gall because he would rather die than see us everlastingly perish. That's incomprehensible 
incomprehensible, world-saving love, if we got that message in our bones, we would fly out of this building and talk with every single human being and we would never stop. Jesus refused to drink that gall because he didn't want one sin to fall upon us. That's the breadth and length and height and depth. The incomprehensible love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that surpasses all worlds, that surpasses all comprehension. That God would become a man in order to die for, die for sinful men that hate him, in order that those men might come and live with him forever. Our final question then, and how, how did Jesus suffer? We've already heard much of this tonight. The question I'm asking is, in what manner did Jesus suffer? What was in his heart when he suffered? Jesus suffered with gladness and joy in his heart. The Puritan John Bunyan once said that we never read that Jesus Christ was more cheerful in all of his life on earth than when he was going to lay down his life for his people. What did Jesus do in the last hours of his life? What would you do if you knew you were gonna die in an hour, two hours, Jesus was rejoicing and thanking the Father and cheering up his disciples. He instituted the Last Supper, Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to his disciples, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus blessed God, that is, he gave thanks to God for the suffering that he was about to undergo for his beloved. Jesus ate the last supper, the sacrament of his death, with joy and gladness in his heart that he could do this for you and me. And then right before he took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be betrayed, we read this. In Matthew 26, 30, that they sang a hymn. Jesus was singing on his way to his arrest. Singing on the way to the cross. Singing on the way to being scourged. He didn't go begrudgingly. He didn't go half-heartedly. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, He for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What an amazing truth. We grow weary of worshiping God. We grow weary of it. Our flesh grows tired of it. And he never grows weary of blessing us, saving us, cleansing us, forgiving us, washing us, filling us. That's the one that we are thinking about tonight, that we are praising tonight. The one who was even on the cross up until his last dying breath was say, hey, watch out for my mom. Father, forgive them for what they do. No, I, 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 I can't drink that drink because that won't fulfill the scripture. In every single word, in every single thought, in every single deed, 
Jesus had gladness in our heart for our redemption. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the greatest event in human history, that God would become man, that he would suffer at the hands of sinful man, and that at any moment he could have released himself and freed himself. And yet he suffered for sinners like us. Oh, the depths and height and length and breadth the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. We pray, Lord, that this weekend that you would cause us lift our eyes up to heaven. Look, lift our eyes up to Sunday as we look to the resurrection. And think about the great abounding love of our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.